the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Oftentimes in America, when we think about the issue of slavery, it's been not only a huge black eye on America's reputation going back into her history, but also a point of pride. Pride in the sense that come the mid to later 1800s, we finally came to the conclusion that slavery was not a good thing. It was something that deservedly needed to be abolished. And while there's many arguments to suggest that we're still sort of recuperating from the impact of multiple generations of slavery in America going back into the 1800s, those that would think that with the abolishment of slavery in America that ended slavery, period, would be sorely and sadly mistaken. In fact, while slavery in the fashion that we're familiar with from a historical viewpoint may not exist in that truest form, other forms of slavery not only abound today, both here in the United States, but even domestically, and it has become a multi-billion dollar industry. As we dive into the sad, murky details of slavery going on and human trafficking, I'll warn you that some segments of our conversation in this portion of Lifeline may not be appropriate for young years. So if you have children about, you may want to busy them elsewhere. As we engage in conversation with a special guest tonight, he has served as an undercover investigator and outlines his experiences inside of a new book called God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. And Daniel Walker, thanks so much for being with us on the program. No, thanks for having me. This is a topic that I suppose to, to the average Westerner, the average American, uh, is probably shocked to find out that this even goes on. I mean, to be sure, we know that in big cities all over America, just as they are in, in many parts of the world, there is a one level or another of prostitution. But when we get into the topic of sex trafficking and slavery, this is bigger, darker, and more insidious than perhaps most people could even imagine. Yeah, certainly that was the biggest shock for me, uh, not only how easy it was to find uh, all around the world, but the magnitude of it, and uh, that there are more people in slavery in our generation than at any other time in history uh, does boggle the mind. I mean, more people in slavery, as you've said, than, uh, than when slavery was alive in this country, than when William Wilberforce was fighting the transatlantic slave trade. Indeed, more slavery today than when Moses led the slaves out of Egypt. Uh, all those years ago. Um, and, uh, and the nature of it, of course, is the only thing that's, that's different. There aren't people standing on street corners with chains around their ankles. They're largely hidden behind closed doors. Uh, and uh, the fastest growing form of modern day slavery is, is uh, the trafficking of, of women and children. Is this what allows it to flourish the way it has, becoming, as you suggest, Daniel, a multi-billion dollar global industry because so much of it takes place uh, either under the cover of darkness or behind closed doors? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think if uh, well, I'm confident that uh, if people were still being sold on our street corners uh, and uh, the chains were visible around their ankles, uh, we would do something about it. And the church primarily would... Uh, would answer its call to to be the organization, the leading group of people who have a mandate and a mission 
uh, to set people free from everything that enslaves them, whether that's uh, personal sin or whatever sucks the life out of us, but also literal slavery. But yeah, like you said, we we don't see it. It's uh, it's behind closed doors. It's often behind fronts for other businesses. Uh, but we need to see it, and I guess that's why I wanted to write this book, so that people would be able to see what I saw during uh, four years uh, behind those doors. Do we need to be clear in articulating for the benefit of the audience, Daniel, that when we talk about sex trafficking, it's not singularly the issue of, of prostitution. Uh, we often think about prostitutes as a woman who, who volunteers it because maybe there's a sense of desperation. She gets pulled into the lifestyle. Maybe she has been solicited into this lifestyle as making money at it. But generally, I think most of us in the West kind of get the sense that anytime a woman wanted to really step out of that lifestyle, they would have the opportunity to do so. Um, we're talking about something here that when you apply the word slavery to sex trafficking, you, you literally mean women and in some cases children that are pulled into this against their will and literally are, are locked in no different than a slave would be in the traditional sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of deception uh, involved and false lies and promises that are used to lure uh, young women and, as you've said, children into this industry. But, uh, yeah, make no mistake, it is slavery in the extreme. And uh, one of the first cases I came across was um, in the company of a, a U.S. Special Forces soldier, actually, who uh, was operating in that part of the world, and he uh, liked what we were doing. He said, you know, I'll come along and provide you some security, and I said, that would be great. Uh, absolutely. So he came with me to this uh, location, and the um, the pimp uh, took us into a, a, a small uh, brothel, and uh, he brought in two 14-year-old girls. Uh, I was recording the transaction with a covert camera. Uh, we paid some cash to uh, return at some future date to have sex with them, and so we were gathering evidence that could be used under local law in that place. Uh, to rescue those uh, girls and, and facilitate the prosecution of the perpetrators. Uh, and so the soldier, you know, he looked at me like, okay, you know, are we good to go? And I knew from the intelligence we'd received that there were even younger uh, children available in that place. And so I said, ah, you know, these, these girls are a bit old for me. And this pimp, he, uh, he winked and smiled and he said, wait there, and he disappeared and he came back into the room. And he had two little girls who were about six years old and uh, they had pigtails and teddy bears on their t-shirts and uh, this, um, this soldier, he shut down at that point, he went quiet and uh, nothing, you know, he's a guy that's been there and done that but nothing had prepared him for uh, two little six-year-old girls being offered to him for 30 US dollars an hour for, for whatever he wanted to do to them basically and uh, you know at that point I took over, I taught Sunday school in my youth and I got them to sit on my knee and uh, as far as the pimp was concerned, I was the perfect sleaze, but I was getting them up close to the camera, capturing their faces and their names and as much information as I could about where they came from. Uh, and then we, we then paid uh, for some future transaction where, when we would return, and we did return, but we didn't come back with customers. We came back with police, and they, they raided that place. They arrested the perpetrators, and we rescued those kids. You have a background, of course, in uh, police and investigative work. How did you initially get, get pulled into investigating this of uh, the most insidious of crimes? Well, I think right from when I first became a Christian, actually, uh, as a very young man, I, I um, was in my teens doing the 40-hour the famine, uh, as it's called in New Zealand. I think you have a 30-hour famine in the U.S., um, and we were sent the publicity material about what the money was going for that year, and it was talking about these children as young as 13, 
14 who were selling themselves on the streets. And my younger sister was 13 at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up with Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist, and so on. I, I just thought this was something of an, of an age gone by. And so to discover that it was more rife than ever in our large cities around the world. And uh, I, I prayed a dangerous prayer, I guess. I, um, God, if you can use me uh, one day to do something about this, uh, here I am. And uh, I subsequently heard Tony Campolo, a motivational speaker, talk about a, a program that he and uh, Ron Sider, who wrote uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, uh, had put together to train young people basically to go into these places around the world and um, uh, break the, poverty, the cycles of poverty and oppression. Uh, and um, after uh, working in the New Zealand police for about 10 or 11 years, I heard about a number of organisations that were then using the skills of um, uh, police officers, investigators, lawyers and so on to get this kind of evidence which was being used to set people free. So I um, seized the opportunity. And of course, in doing so, you've now invested a lifetime, not just in investigating the cases from an undercover investigative standpoint, but also helping to literally capture and and release many of these uh, both women and children that have been pulled into slavery. Yes. Yeah, uh, it was amazing for me. I I went into one brothel and um, the woman lined up as they do. And uh, they were from Korea, Japan, Thailand, uh, Philippines, Latin America. And uh, I chose uh, Jenny, who, who was from Korea, and I uh, took her into the bedroom. I then made up some excuse as to why I wasn't going to have sex with her and just uh, started to talk with her and just ask the question. So, you know, where are you from? What's your real name? Uh, why, why can't you leave? Why have they got your passport? And who is it that, that receives money from this place? And um, uh, the amazing thing for me was that... Um, well, Jenny said she had travelled all the way from Korea. She'd been promised a legitimate job. And uh, when she arrived at the location, her passport was taken, she was raped, and she was told that if she ever tried to leave, uh, not only would she be uh, brutalised further, uh, but her family and her little sister and her little brother back home, she would never see them again. And uh, so often the chains that hold these women are um, chains of terror, and uh, it's, it is organised crime that... Um, that in many cases keep them there. The amazing thing for me was that this brothel was not in Southeast Asia. Uh, it was not in Latin America or Eastern Europe. I mean, Jenny was being held captive in, a, in the suburbs of the United States of America. Daniel Walker, our guest, a look at his new book, God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our guest tonight, Daniel Walker. Daniel is an undercover investigator who's detailed his experiences inside of a new book. Interesting title, I might add. God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. Daniel, you were mentioning just before the break on this topic of human sex trafficking and slavery that's taking place around the globe today, that as much as we occasionally might hear of these stories, investigative television programs, we'll talk about, for example, uh, sex tourism to countries like Vietnam and Thailand. But this idea of, of sex slavery, particularly with children suffering it, is not something that is limited uniquely to uh, parts of the world like Asia, but even here in the United States. Where are they getting these children, and how is it that the operators of these brothels, and I'm assuming most all under the purveyance of organized crime, are able to operate below the radar screen? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, and I guess uh, in part it's because of the nature of the uh, 
of the business. Um, it's often hidden behind other fronts. Uh, the women and children involved are uh, often uh, manipulated and uh, terrorised uh, to a tremendous degree. They're told that if the authorities become involved, they themselves will be arrested and charged with either being illegal or um, for prostitution-related offences, uh, or that things will be done to their families and friends back home. So fear, intimidation are big factors in all of this. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, in some, I've heard of some cases where uh, if a gang uh, requires 10 women in a certain location, they will bring 11 women, and they'll go to the top of the tall building, and they'll push one of those women off, and then they'll turn to the other 10 and say, this is what will happen to you if you ever talk or if you ever try and leave. Uh, a financial, a heavy financial debt is imposed. They're basically told, you know, you have this debt to pay off. Until you pay off this debt, uh, you cannot leave. And, um, you know, I, I, I met... Um, uh, Maria, who at the age of uh, 15, well actually 13 when she first was uh, pulled into this brothel, but at the age of 15, uh, she was trafficked and she was told, you have to pay off this debt. And um, she ran away, she ran to the uh, local police, this was in uh, Central America. Uh, she ran to the local police, the police took her straight back to the brothel because they provided protection. Mm. Uh, and the, the officers got freebies with any of the girls whenever they wanted it. Uh, she ran away again and she ran further and harder, she ran to the army. And the army took her to the border and said, you know, you're illegal, get out of the country. Uh, the very, she ran into the hands of the very same group of coyotes or traffickers who took her straight back to that brothel. So when I found her uh, on this little dance floor in, in Latin America, she had absolutely no recourse to justice. Actually, Maria was one of my first cases, and I hadn't been doing the work very long. And um, uh, I was afraid. I was afraid of my own humanity, my, my own sinful nature. I was well aware how fickle uh, men can be it. Unlike some men, I guess it was only after becoming a Christian that I started to frequent brothels in this manner and uh, to gather evidence. But, uh, you know, I was still very aware of uh, my sinful nature and, and didn't really know, you know, what's going to happen when I walk into these places. I, I was afraid of the bad guys with guns and the, uh, the organized crime that, um, that uh, protected those places. And I was also afraid of evil. You know, I perceived these buildings and uh, where women and children were devoured and enslaved as enemy, enemy territory that I was going into. And actually it was Maria that pulled me onto the dance floor. I'd captured the evidence. I'd already recorded the brothel owner selling Maria to me, so I was eager to leave. But Maria was much more intent on seducing me, and, and she was afraid she would get in trouble if she didn't. So we're standing on this dance floor of this little brothel, and uh, it was with some desperation that I, I prayed, you know, God, help me get out of here. Uh, but as I did so, everything changed. And I suddenly saw Maria not as a threat to my personal purity or professionalism, but as a child of God and whose life evil had been so allowed to consume and devour. And I was filled with this um, overwhelming sense of hatred, holy hatred for evil and this anger, this burning anger at our indifferent world that so allows its children to be bought and sold. And in that moment, the, the still small voice whispered in my ear, greater is he. Mm. that is in you than he that is in the world and I suddenly re realized that I was the one who was in possession of enough evidence to send all of the bad guys in that place to jail and to facilitate the rescue of all of the women and children in there if anyone was dangerous it was me and if anyone needed to fear it was actually the bad guys and then the hymn of an old hymn uh, the, uh, the words of an old hymn that I'd sung in my own childhood this is my father's world came to my mind and again I just realized um, as I prayed on this little dance floor uh, dance for this little brothel that God was in that place long before I arrived suffering with those who suffer and witnessing 
Maria's defilement, waiting for someone to show up in his name to set her free, and that he would remain there long after I left. And so I guess on that little brothel uh, in Central America, I felt commissioned, you know, do not be afraid. In fact, go boldly to places such as these, because my children are suffering there. Here in America, are many of the girls uh, brought in from foreign countries as well that are effectively given promises of, of freedom in America, but have to, of course, pay back uh, the coyotes that bring them across the border into the country? Or is there also a percentage of these, Daniel, that are here because they're in, involved in human sex slavery because they're runaways? Uh, both, yes, absolutely. Um uh, some estimates say that between 18 and 20,000 women are trafficked into the United States every year from Eastern Europe and Asia, Latin America. Uh, but of course, the largest majority are American women and children who are trafficked uh, between states and across state lines um, and within uh, within states. Uh, you know, the most horrifying statistic, I guess, is that there are uh, two million children every day around the world are sold into prostitution. And of that two million. 100,000 are in the United States of America. And the average age that a child enters uh, prost uh, prostitution or is sold into, manipulated, pulled into, enslaved into this industry is 13 years old. Is much of the operation globally all under the control of organized crime? Uh, you know, it's both. I mean, there's both ends of the spectrum. There are... Um, uh, very powerful groups, and I've been into these uh, factories that are the size of literally the factories, huge concrete buildings surrounded by men with two-way radios, where inside I found more than a hundred women, all of whom were being held against their will, all of whom, and once I spoke to them in the, in the back bedrooms, uh, and they understood that I was possibly a way out, they, they, you know, in hushed whispers and with tears and desperation begged me uh, for rescue. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have the, the poor, you know, mother and father who, um, because of poverty or whatever other reason, a relative comes to the village and promises the, uh, the daughter an income, or the son in some cases, an income that they could send back to the, to the village. And out of desperation, out of poverty, they agree to allow their child to go. And of course, it's not selling food or, or making clothes. It's uh, ultimately in a brothel. I've seen a lot of those cases, aren't they, where they're coming in from rural areas and villages into the quote-unquote big city to find employment, that oftentimes they are lured in, are they not? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's part of the deception. I mean, trafficking is very simply uh, deception and coercion. There's, there's a, an element of deception or lies about what is, uh, is involved. Um, and uh, so the person, in, in many cases, willingly goes with the consent of, of the family and so on. But upon arrival at the destination, their passports are, or papers are taken, they're put into a brothel and, and uh, uh, sold. Uh, initially, typically for a large amount because they're a young virgin, um, and then uh, uh, for lesser amounts. But uh, the, the debt that they have to pay off is, is imposed on them. And uh, as I say, these, these um, uh, terror, they, they live in literal terror. If you've just joined our conversation, our visit on this edition of Lifeline with an undercover police officer, Daniel Walker, we're talking about his new book, God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. We'll take a brief time out, come back with more of this look at Dark Side of Humanity as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our guest, Daniel Walker. Daniel is an undercover investigator and details his experiences into the insidious, dark, evil world of sex trafficking and slavery in a new book that's been newly published by InterVarsity Press entitled God in a Brothel, an Undercover Journey into Sex Trafficking and Rescue. Daniel, in the years that you have worked to help rescue these women, sometimes men, many children, both here in the United States and internationally, what is your perception of the problem? As we talk more about this in a public fashion, as organizations are being created to not only raise awareness, but try to uh, assist uh, police authorities in bringing the criminals responsible for sex sex, uh, trafficking to justice, do you get the impression the situation or the problem is getting any better or is it getting worse? No, I think it's getting worse. Uh, some uh, estimates say that in the next 10 years, the commercial sexual exploitation and sale of women and children will become the number one earner for organized criminal groups, surpassing the sale of drugs. Uh, it, as you said, a $32 billion U.S. industry at the moment. But unlike uh, drugs, which you, know, you sell once and they're gone, you get a child from when she's five and you sell her multiple times a day until she's in her 20s or gets AIDS and dies. Uh, the, the profits are astronomical and uh, the penalties are often less for selling women and children than they are for selling drugs. So, uh, no, the, um, this industry is growing, it's booming. And, um, and again, that's why I wrote the book, so that uh, in the hope that people would see what I saw, and in particular that the church would respond as uh, one of uh, the best-positioned organizations in the world. Uh, we're, we're in pretty much every community where this goes on. Uh, in, very, in very many cases, um, uh, church and parachurch organizations, they know uh, what is going on, or at least have people within their community, their faith community, they often have all the assets, all the available skills necessary. There's, there's an investigator, there's a lawyer, a business person, a communications person, and they just need to make that connection between this God who came to set a, a human race free from slavery. You know, it's, it's as old as the Garden of Eden, uh, right through to, to Moses leading people out of literal slavery through to the great abolitionists. Who, uh, who came to set us free from everything that, that sucks the life out of us. And uh, I think at a time when there are more people involved, more people enslaved than ever before, if, if we as the church are silent and not actively engaged, then we cannot say with any credibility that we represent the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who came to set us free. If the church on this topic, Daniel, remains silent, uh, disinterested and distant from the topic, it seems to be something that, that's ugly, it's vile, it's evil, uh, something that perhaps uh, we'd rather not talk about in so-called polite con- uh, company. How, how bad is it? Give me a snapshot, if you would, for someone who is hearing this topic discussed, frankly and openly, maybe for the first time, and they're staring at dis- in disbelief at their radio receiver right now, thinking, I can't imagine I'm even hearing a conversation about slavery and underage sex trafficking taking place on a Christian radio station. Walk us through the profile of one of the children that you have dealt with and how bad things can get if we don't get engaged, if we don't step in to make a difference. Oh, well, um, I guess uh, I can tell you about a pimp that I met a a couple of streets away from uh, where Martin Luther King wrote his... um, his uh, famous passages about freedom and uh, and having a dream for this country, the United States of America, where people would live in, in freedom and uh, it would be a country of justice. And uh, he was a pimp in uh, the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, and he was telling me how easy it is 
to walk into pretty much any mall in the United States. And he said within a very short space of time, he could identify young girls who were vulnerable. Uh, and they came from all walks of life, not just poor and, and uh, uh, girls and boys, but, um, or runaways, but also from wealthy families. And he said, uh, I said, how did you do it? You know, I was pretending to be uh, enamored by his ability. And he said, oh, it's easy, I sell dreams. I just sell them dreams that any seduces and enslaves with his with his sweet-smelling lies, uh, which ultimately, of course, become nightmares. And um, yeah, as I said uh, earlier, it's not just in the brothels and, and back rooms of uh, Southeast Asia, but in the in the bedrooms and the in the uh, massage parlors and the back uh, rooms of office buildings uh, all across the United States. There are women and children who are being held against their will. And uh, yeah, I guess um, for those who are wondering whether this is indeed something that the church should be engaged in, um, you know, I guess in the United States I hear a lot of talk about being a believer. Uh, and Jesus himself said, you know, that being a believer is not enough. Uh, you know, that so, so what? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Big deal. You know, even, even the demons believe that. Uh, that it's about... Uh, you know, he goes on to say, religion, as it says in James, you know, religion that God our Father accepts as pure is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to rescue orphans and widows in their distress. And in fact, uh, as you know, Jesus reserved his harshest words for the religious of his day and said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. And, and throughout the Old and New Testament, he makes it very clear um, that his will is to set people free from whatever enslaves them. And, you know, in the Christian church, we talk about knowing God. And that is indeed the heart of our message, that we are known and that we can know God. And the prophet Jeremiah, uh, 22.16, he defended the cause or rescued the cause of the poor and the oppressed. In other words, he rescued people from slavery. Is that not what it means to know me, says the Lord? So I guess the challenge is, you know, if, if we're not aware of this, and we're not somehow engaged, then can we really say that we know him at all? There's a lot of talk about legalization of prostitution, even in San Francisco, um, under our um, former district attorney, Terrence Hallinan. They had gone to simply not enforcing the law, and if the police arrested both prostitutes and or Johns, uh, would drop them down off of the jail, they would be out in less than 24 hours, and the district attorney's office simply did not prosecute, considering this a so-called victimless crime. If, in fact, there is any level of success at the push toward so-called legalization of prostitution, Constitution. Does that somehow make this any better? You know, from my experience, um, well, I, I do want to say that uh, I think it is wrong to criminalize small children, you know, 13, 14 years old, who often end up uh, under the control of a, a pimp who is effectively, a, he's a criminal, he's a slave master. And so often it's these uh, 13 and 14 year old girls, 15 year old girls who are being uh, arrested. And um, thankfully there is some great training in law enforcement around the world and in this country uh, to encourage law enforcement officers to look beneath the surface and to ask those questions so that they, um, they do and can identify that actually the people with the power and the people that are making the money out of this crime are, you know, 99% of the time not the, uh, the small girls involved. It's actually the, the pimps and in some cases the very organized pimps and, and organizations that put them on the street. Uh, and of course it's the men who, uh, who prey on them and use them. So if, if it has to be criminalized, then, then uh, you know, law enforcement is slowly 
moving toward and recognising that they need to criminalise the uh, the buyers and the sellers, not the most vulnerable person in the transaction. Uh, but it, you know what, I've, I've been in countries where it's uh, legal and where it's illegal. And it largely, um, from my experience, has been irrelevant. In both of those countries, there are still women and children who are forced. It's still exploitation then, no matter how you slice it, even if the government somehow codifies it and says, okay, we're going to look the other way and consider this uh, not to be something that we'll prosecute on, as in the case of San Francisco, or simply legalize it, does not erase or modify the fact that it's still exploitation. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, in Amsterdam, where it's widely known around the world, that it's uh, legal. Uh, A huge percentage, um, uh, I was told recently, but it's escaped my memory, but a huge percentage of those women who are on display behind those glass windows in Amsterdam are still victims of human trafficking. And, um, yeah, I guess uh, there is so much division, or can be a huge potential for division when it comes to, do we legalise it, do we criminalise it? I guess what I um, have found is that what we can all agree on, and what we can, you know, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Conservative, Liberal, we can all sit around the table and agree and work together and agree that women and children should not be forced into this industry and they should not be sold as slaves. And that's something that we can be united about. And whatever end of the political spectrum or whatever our views, uh, you know, we can all get together and agree that in the extreme form, these little five and six year old girls that I have carried out of brothels around the world, uh, that that should not be happening. And even if they're 14, 15, 16 year old American girls who are under the control of a pimp who has so enslaved them mentally, psychologically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, that they need us to gather around them and to, and to do what we can to set them free. Amen. And that the church should not turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to the situation. The book is called God in a Brothel, an undercover journey into sex trafficking and rescue. Newly published by InterVarsity Press, and its author has been our guest today, undercover investigator Daniel Walker. Daniel, I know it's a tough subject. We appreciate so much the work you've done on behalf of not only bringing uh, the, the perpetrators to justice, but bringing um, hope and eventually released to those victims of all of this. Thanks so much for taking some time to visit with us today. No, thank you. I mean, like I said, I think it's something that everyone can get engaged in at some level, and that's the exciting part of it and and does bring hope. So, no, thanks for having me. Thanks again. Daniel Walker, God in a Brothel, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As much as money is so much a part of the topic of what's going on in the world and in our nation, it even filters down to our own personal lives. And, you know, ironically, when we think about it in in Western culture and in American society, I think um, in specific, um, we have a lot of ideas about money and the connection to money and masculinity and what that means. A lot of men, I think, feel as if they have been emasculated. Since uh, fall of 2008, when we saw the implosion of Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers at all, to see people who have lost their jobs, they've lost life savings, they've lost retirement dollars, they've lost their homes. Many of the things that particularly we as men, as the breadwinners of the family, tie into what we consider to be marks of success and what it means to be a man. And yet, as my next guest will suggest, um, the true meaning of what it is to be a man uh, is not measured by economic success, particularly when we look at this from a biblical or Christian worldview. He is Richard Simmons, author of The True Measure of a Man. He also serves as director of the Center for Executive Leadership 
Leadership, a Christian-based community resource, and joins us now by phone. And Richard, good afternoon and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Craig. Thank you. This has got to be a tough topic, and certainly men listening to our conversation here tonight who have lost jobs, seen their livelihood and their identity in many cases go down the drain because of that, watched their fortunes erode away because of what's transpired on Wall Street, up to and including in some cases the loss of the very roof over their heads, the, the blow that that must mean to a man and his sense of, of, of self-worth and self-esteem must be horrific. Yeah, it is. And uh, what most men don't realize is the driving force in their lives, even Christian men, that so many of us, when it gets right down to it, get our sense of worth and identity um, and significance based on how well we perform out in the worst workplace. That's where we get, uh, I guess you could say that's how we define ourselves. And so when we run into uh, economic uh, calamity, economic problems, it can be devastating. And, you know, I, I think, to be fair, a lot of us guys, and I think myself included, if, if somebody stops me on the street or I'm, I'm talking to an acquaintance that I hasn't seen in, in many, many years, or somebody might ask you casually, so, so what do you do for a living? And, and we're inclined, at least I know I am, I'm more inclined to, to tell you who I am as opposed to what I do. In other That's words, right. I will probably say, well, I'm a radio broadcaster, I, I host a talk show, things of this sort. Um, as opposed to speaking about specifically the details of the job. Uh, is part of that uniquely a, a Western or more specifically American ideal? And if we wrap our identity and to a degree our sense of self-worth and value uh, into our livelihood and our ability to earn money and how successful we are at same, and then all of a sudden the carpet through no fault of our own is ripped out from underneath us, what does that do to a man at every level, not only economically, emotionally, but even spiritually? Well, what most men don't realize is that life for them is all about what I do as far as, you know, my, my, my work uh, and how successful I am at what I do, which then makes me wonder, what do you think about what I do? How do you rate what I do? Which then <clears throat> leads to what I think is the, the great fear that most men struggle with, even though sometimes they're not aware of it is what if I fail at what I do? Uh, that failure, the fear of failure, is like a psychological death for most, most men. Um, what I'm finding is that men, in many instances, are not driven to succeed. They are driven not to fail. And this, this creates all kind of dysfunction in their lives. It cascades into so many areas, uh, including depression, um, and it's, uh, it's a real problem that men are just kind of coming to grips with, and it creates all kind of pain in their lives, and they don't want to tell anybody about it. Uh, we have this idea that, that if, if I'm experiencing pain, if I'm struggling, I am betraying my male identity, and we just want to hold it in and not tell anybody. Well, let's face it. I mean, this is part of what we do. We put, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, some do, uh, into their livelihood. They're the breadwinners. They, the man is, uh, you know, providing that uh, that covering over the household. Uh, the economic aspect of protection, I think, is, is high on the agenda. We want to make sure that our families are well cared for, that they enjoy, you know, the finer things in life, that the kids can grow up with good education, someday send our daughters off to be married with a nice wedding, all of the entrapments that are tied into our ability to earn. So then when suddenly that has taken away from us, or we're suddenly faced by this overwhelming fear of failure, uh, what does that do? How does that impact our relationships with, with family, with spouses, and with the Lord? That is a great question. 
Um, what most people don't realize is that, you know, we have two basic psychological needs, and I explore this in the book. Women have a, primarily a psychological, we both have it, but women have more of a psychological need for security. Men, on the other hand, have a much greater need for significance, that my life matters, that my life uh, uh, is worth something. And therefore, uh, I've, I've seen this when I meet with couples who may have to sell their house. The wife is glad to do it because it makes her feel better about their financial situation. But for a man, it goes much deeper because his significance is threatened, his manhood is threatened, and it can just devastate him. And then it impacts the relationship in the marriage, his relationship with his children, and he, and he spends so much of his time um, uh, in silence carrying a lot of pain around. It's like that old song by Simon and Garfunkel, I'm a rock. I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. And that's what most men think that they're supposed to be today, and it creates all kinds of problems in their home. And so much of this, of course, uh, Richard, as you suggest inside the pages of the book, goes to the heart of what have essentially been false ideas about what it means to be successful. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, that, that is a huge issue, and um, you know, the second half of the book is uh, focuses on how to help men be set free from this, and what you just uh, uh, mentioned is, is, is a major part of this. Uh, Blaise Pascal said the reason that we struggle with life so much is because we have false ideas about reality, and men in, in the modern world particularly struggle with this. We have false ideas about what is true masculinity. We have false ideas about what does it really mean to be successful in life, and we have false ideas about what is true wealth. What does it mean to really be wealthy? And so... What men don't realize is how important it is to get um, our lives in harmony with what is true. Because as Jesus himself said, it's the truth that will set you free. And this, is, to me, is so important to be set free from what I call this success trap that we get so caught up in. Talk to us a bit about then what men need to do to, re, to recalibrate their thinking, so to speak. I mean, a lot of us, we, we not only have had this pounded into our heads since childhood, you got to get a job, you got to get educated, you got to go get a career, and we measure success based on, you know, how much money is in the bank and the size and the quality of the vacations that we take, all of these yardsticks, so to speak, that all comes down to finances and money. Um, and we end up, I think as you're suggesting, is spending an awful lot of time pursuing an awful lo a lot of lies. That's, that's correct. And, um, Craig, there are a number of things that I, I could say to you. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to recognize that this is true of my life because at the heart of wisdom is just understanding yourself, understanding what makes you tick. Um, second uh, is uh, what I just we talked about, understanding the lies of, of life that we bought into. Uh, I talk at length about you know, what is the object of life? If the object of life is to be wealthy and prosperous and comfortable, then economic misfortune or failure is going to devastate you. But if the object of life is the transformation of my character, the maturing of my soul, and knowing God personally, then the storms of life, the economic storms of life, can be a blessing based on the way I respond to it. But probably the most important thing, and I talk about, you know, focusing on the legacy that we leave behind, how that will impact us. But the most important thing is, is realizing this, that I get my sense of worth and value based on what other people really think about me. You know, if I perform well, then people think well of me. I win their approval. And so I spend so much of my time um, seeking to please them because that's the most important people in my life. That's the audience I'm trying to please. And my challenge to men is, what do you think would happen if Jesus is the most important person in your life, 
if that's where you get your sense of worth and value, because Jesus loves you, not based on your performance, but on who you are. You're of such great value to him because we're created in his image. And as believers, we're his children. And therefore, we have great value. It's like that verse in Ephesians 2.10 that says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which means work of art. We are God's masterpiece. We are of great value to him. And if a man can really get that into his life, it will change him radically. What's the starting point? Uh, obviously, I think a lot of self-introspection. I mean, a lot of guys, when they go through challenges, they're facing uh, the sp- prospect of, of losing a lot. They're overwhelmed uh, to a great degree by, by fear. I think oftentimes we we uh, then operate or function out of a sense of panic and not really reality-based. And guys are saying, well, it's time to you know brush up the resume, Richard, and <laughs> you know get ready to start all over again. Do we need to maybe get reevaluated, not as we prep for the next big interview, interview with the potential employer, but rather to, to then look at it, as you're suggesting, from what are the kind of questions, not that the, the, the prospective employer would be asking me across from the table, but what are the kind of questions that God would be asking me? Yeah, I, I think the, the starting place is, uh, and you kind of uh, hinted at it, is we, we have to reorient our thinking and our approach to life and our approach to work. You know, it, it's... It, it, it's not so much um, uh, how much money I make. It's, you know, what is God calling me to do with the rest of my life? Uh, you know, that's why I think if a man really starts thinking about his legacy, um, you know, when his life is over, what will his life have been all about? And it's when you begin to think in those terms, you don't get so caught up in, uh, you know, the amount of money you make. You really want to seek to, to uh, do work and, and, I guess you could say, do with your life what will have the greatest impact on others and what will advance the kingdom of God. Ultimately, the true measure of a man not being based on the size of your uh, portfolio, your bank account, the size of the home that you live in, but but rather ultimately on the measure of your relationship before God. Richard Simmons, the author of The True Measure of a Man. Information, by the way, on the book, either through Amazon.com or through Richard's website at thetruemeasureofaman.com. That's thetruemeasureofaman.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.